Well, welcome to City Life. It's good to see all your faces here tonight. Uh, tonight we're kind of just doing a, a one-time sermon. Uh, we were in a series. Easter is next week. It's Palm Sunday Eve. I don't think I can officially call it Palm Saturday. I don't think that's a thing. But we're about to start Holy Week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not 100% tonight. kind of feel like my five loaves, two fishes. It might be two loaves, one fish. But how many of you guys know it didn't matter the number of loaves and fishes? It just mattered Jesus was a part of it. So I pray that God would use this word tonight. But we are about to kick off Holy Week, right? The, the week leading up to Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And tomorrow's Palm Sunday, which kicks it off, where Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem, and the people were shouting Hosanna, and they had the palm leaves and the palm branches. And it was just a week after that where another crowd is shouting crucify him. They're leading him back out of Jerusalem to Golgotha to crucify that same Jesus Christ, our Savior. So many sermons have been preached about the crowds, the fickle nature of the crowd, not being pulled into or drawn into that fickle nature of the crowd. Or maybe which crowd are you a part of, the ones that shouted Hosanna or crucify him. But there's also a, a pairing in Easter that I want to look at tonight. There's two Simons. So the sermon tonight is called A Tale of Two Simons. And if you got your Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke 10. It's where we'll be in a minute. If you're taking notes, it's a tale of two Simons. The one that we're probably most familiar with is Simon Peter. So probably the most famous of the disciples. We know him as Peter, but his name was Simon Peter. And probably many sermons have been preached about his three denials. And then his threefold restoration after Jesus' resurrection when he shows up to his disciples. But there's another Simon that's a little bit of a forgotten figure, and it's Simon of Cyrene. There's many, many pronunciations for that last name, and I'm going with Cyrene, so judge me if you want. But it's hard because there's not much commentary on him. Right? There's not a whole lot of notes on him. There's not a lot of sermons preached on him. There's not a lot of chapters in books on Simon of Cyrene. And it's not due to neglect, and it's not really a coincidence either. There's just not that much in Scripture about him. In each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we only get but one verse on Simon of Cyrene. Now, perhaps the one that gives us the most information, it's in Mark. It's Mark chapter 15, verse 21. And it says, this is as Jesus, again, is being led out of Jerusalem to be crucified in this crowd. And it says, a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. And it says, Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So again, Simon Peter is famous, heralded through church history. Simon Cyrene, in most cases, is an afterthought. But the tale of these two Simons throughout Holy Week, or through Holy Week, Simon Peter and Simon of Cyrene is a tale of two bystanders. And I want to look at both, as well as two teachings that Jesus gives about being a bystander. Now, the first and Easily most famous teaching is, is in Luke 10. It's the parable that many songs are named after. There's a, a law in the United States named after, and it's the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, an expert of the law asked Jesus, hey, what do I have to do to punch my ticket to heaven? <laughs> and as Jesus often does, he replies to his question with a question. He basically says, well, what do you think? Right? He says, how do you, or what does the law say? How do you read it? And he replies with, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and Love your neighbor. It was a good answer. So Jesus says you've answered correctly. And when I read that and I'm thinking, Jesus, you're telling us how to get into heaven. Wouldn't this have been a good time to maybe 
point to yourself. Maybe say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That mic drop statement that would truly show us the, the path forward. But to turn upward to God in love, to turn to Christ in love, means to turn outward and respond to the world in love and compassion as attached fruit, direct fruit. And Jesus then goes from this conversation into the parable of the Good Samaritan to illustrate the above. And I'm going to read verses 30 through 37 in Luke 10. This is the parable he tells. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asked. Now the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now we see in this parable that Jesus tells, we see what psychologists would call passive bystanders and active bystanders. Two uh, distinctions of, of bystanders, where a passive bystander remains detached from the situation, an active bystander jumps in to help. Now, these psychological studies uh, on bystanding and bystanders, they increased exponentially after an event in Queens in 1964. It's when a young woman named Kitty Genovese was brutally murdered within sight and earshot of 38 neighbors, the equivalent of 38 priests and Levites that in some cases, three cases, saw what was happening. All of them heard what was happening and did nothing to help. Again, three admitted to seeing it and yet did nothing to help. It shocked the American public so much that it moved psychologists to try and study and understand the difference between passive bystanding and active bystanding. And it's not hard to find examples of being a bystander. You think when you were in, in grade school and you were either a passive or active bystander to bullying and, and bullies, and it works its way through life, it works its way through history. Irvin Staub was a psychologist whose research was sparked by his experience as a young Jewish child in Hungary during World War II. The presence of active bystanders who didn't sit idly by during the persecution or why his family and he lived. It was a maid who just took them in and was active and hid them and protected them. But he also witnessed so many passively standing to the side as 75% of Hungary's 600,000 Jews were killed by the Nazis. Many of the terms I'll use tonight actually come from his research. But in the tale of two Simons, we see the above play out in their experience as bystanders. For Simon Peter, Maybe we're a little more familiar with his story. Maybe we're not. We, we see when Jesus was arrested that Simon follows. He follows at a distance. Then finally, when Jesus gets to his destination, Simon Peter settles in at this fire at a distance from where Jesus was. Settles in at that fire with onlookers in the crowd. And he settles in as a, a pseudo bystander. Uh, uh, he wanted people to think he was detached from the conflict, detached from Jesus, he put on this air of indifference to not be recognized 
and to seem like just another passive bystander as Jesus was being persecuted and abused. And in the process, if you've read this story, he denies Jesus Christ three times. Just as Jesus has predicted, just as he said, oh, I'd never do that, never do that. But then as the story goes, the rooster crows fulfilling Jesus' prediction of his denial. And Jesus himself looks at Simon Peter from a distance and the veil of being a would-be bystander is stripped away. And Simon Peter flees the scene in tears. Now Simon of Cyrene, again, we only get but one verse And we see that he was legitimately detached from the situation, but he was pulled in quickly. There were plenty of reasons for Simon of Cyrene in the moment to not want to jump in and help Jesus. Many reasons for him to, to settle in and want to be a passive bystander as Simon Peter was. But again, we only get one verse, but put yourself in his shoes. According to, to Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it says that he was just coming in from the countryside. So he's going one direction. They're literally going the opposite direction. They they, they hit each other head on because this procession with Jesus and his cross is is going out out of the city. So as soon as he picks up his cross, he's doing a 180 and going the other direction. There's a whole sermon you could preach on that. That when you encounter Jesus and you do as he says, deny yourself and pick up your cross. There are 180s you're going to have to do in your life. It's the picture of repentance. It's the picture of turning from sin and following Jesus. But that's spiritually, practically speaking. Practically speaking, Jerusalem at that time had a population of about 30,000 people. Now, during Passover week, at least, historians say, at least 100,000 people would descend on Jerusalem. So many of these pilgrims who had taken this pilgrimage were camped outside the city, and they would have to go into the city whenever they wanted to go in. So it's likely that Simon of Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, that's some 800 to 900 miles of pilgrimage that he went on to get to Jerusalem. This would have took months of planning, all kinds of resources for him to get to Jerusalem and make this pilgrimage. And it's entirely possible He's itching to lay eyes on Jerusalem for the first time when this happens. That he's already tired from lengthy travel when he runs into this procession to Golgotha. But you know, we all have this inclination, this curiosity when we come across something like this, where we all rubberneck, right? So the procession's coming towards him, and and he ends up in the crowd. The crowd engulfs him, and then he's got this man, this brutalized, abused man, falls at his feet. And again, practically speaking, for all he knows, this is some criminal. For all he knows, this person who fell before him is guilty. They didn't have Twitter with with trending topics and and trending topics on homepages on the Internet. There wasn't nightly global news. This man was from hundreds of miles away. And even if he knew who Jesus was, maybe he had heard whispers of him, he might not have recognized him in that moment. Again, Jesus was beat beyond recognition. For all he knows, this is some criminal falling at his feet, not worthy of compassion or jumping in to help in that moment. How often do we measure people up before we, we show compassion? That person on the corner, the, person we, the people we pass in life. But you think psychologically. Put yourself in his shoes. A Roman soldier grabs you to carry this cross. What kind of surprise, reluctance, embarrassment, annoyance. This, they probably grabbed his arm, and you're thinking, get your hands off me, right? It, but come carry this cross. Don't just put yourselves in his shoes. Put yourselves in his culture. 
For him to get under this cross, be draped in Jesus' blood, would have made him unclean according to his culture and their practices of worship. He had just made a 900-mile trip to celebrate Passover, and he'd no longer be able to do so immediately because he had to be made clean again after being made unclean by coming up under this cross. There's probably no other place in the world that Simon wanted to be moments before that than right there where he was. And in that moment under that cross, there was probably nowhere uh, in the world or anywhere in the world he would rather be because of what was happening. And you talk about how psychologically troubling it is that to carry a cross was a shame. It was reserved for the worst of criminals, the lowliest of people to die and have to carry your cross. You know, in psychological studies, people often remain passive bystanders because of what's called a confusion of responsibility. You don't want to be mistaken for the cause of the distress when you go to help somebody with their distress. Simon of Cyrene, no doubt, would have preferred to stay a passive bystander so he wouldn't be mistaken for a criminal and the cause of all the commotion for anybody who walked up like he did. But there's a problem that kind of kept him from remaining a passive bystander. That's because you don't say no to a Roman soldier. They could arrest you, punish you, brutalize you on the spot. He wasn't able to say no. He wasn't going to deny a direct order. So it wasn't his will, but he picked up the cross and he carried it. Not his will. Right? Those were the words Jesus prayed in the garden, knowing that this cross was coming. But Jesus knew why he was sent. God's will, his death, his resurrection, our salvation, our deliverance. And his words were, not my will, but yours be done. Praying to God the Father. Both Jesus and Simon and Cyrene, when they picked up that cross, they were probably thinking in the back of their heads, not my will, but, and they carried it. And Simon, who came to Jerusalem for the sacrifice of Passover, headed back from whence he came, for the ultimate sacrifice of Easter. And now, ceremonially unclean, we don't know that Simon was able to make it to the temple that day, but did he come to grasp that Jesus, the lamb that was slain, was the real sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice, and all that he needed? Right? Who here tonight needs to be reminded that the hoops you're trying to jump through to, to earn your way into God's presence, they're superfluous, they're unnecessary. Jesus was the all-sufficient sacrifice. Always and forever. All those other hoops we try to jump through are null and void. So for Simon of Cyrene, did he realize that in that moment of being forced into action from a passive to an active bystander, how that would change his life forever? How that had the potential to change his life forever? Because what seemed like a story about being in the wrong place at the wrong time ended up being anything but. You know, for us as believers in hindsight, singing songs like, like nothing but the blood, Oh, precious is the flow that makes us white as snow. Understanding what was going on in that moment. It almost becomes a precious moment to be able to come under the cross that the Savior is carrying for you, the weight of our sins, and help him. You think, man, how powerful that would be to be there at that scene knowing he was going to die for me. He's carrying the weight of my sin and to be able to step under that cross and help him. Not be a passive bystander, but actively step in. How could you remain passive knowing what he was doing, dying for you in that moment? No doubt many of you might feel the same way. But that's why I tell you there's a third Simon tonight. It's a third Simon, not Paul Simon, not Simon Cowell, or any other Simons. That's about it. The third Simon, you got one? Simon of Garfunkel? 
But the third Simon that I want to consider here tonight is you. That you're a third Simon. And here's the difference with you. You don't get a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You get the opportunity again and again, often daily, to help Jesus carry the weight he bears. And he needs active bystanders, not passive ones. Now, what on earth am I talking about? When would we ever walk up on Jesus carrying a cross and bearing a burden like this in our lives? Like Simon Peter and Simon the Cyrene, well, you can turn to the second teaching I want to look at in terms of bystanding, and it's in Matthew 25. It's Matthew 25. I want to read 33 through 46. Speaking of, of the final judgment, when Jesus comes and we all stand before him, it says in verse 33, he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For as I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me to your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or a stranger and show you hospitality? Or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. It's a profound statement. Whatever you did for one of the least of these, you, you did it for me. That's profound. I think sometimes, though, the idea of carrying our cross, if you've grown up in the church, you've been in the church for years, it can kind of lose the sense of being profound, this invitation that Jesus gives us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, speaking to sacrifice, speaking to the commitment we show when we follow Christ. We often equate this cross we're called to carry with maybe ailments or challenges or, or issues that we're asked to endure, but to carry another's cross, to find somebody else who's, who's carrying a, a weight and a burden and to, to help them carry that burden and be an active bystander. We love the politics of Pontius Pilate where we kind of just wash our hands and, and try to defer responsibility to somebody else. We as psychologists would call it embrace the diffusion of responsibility. Now what that means is, is if there are other bystanders, we feel less responsible to act and prone to passiveness. And there were 38 witnesses to that murder in Queens. And some of them said they, they saw other lights turn on and they realized other people had heard it, other people had seen what was happening, so they figured somebody else would intervene. It's the diffusion of responsibility. But at, on that day of judgment, Jesus isn't going to say, well, well, what did they do? What did those people do over there? No, he's going to ask, what did you do for the least of these? Because we do it unto Jesus. But listen, this has to be crucial and key. This idea of helping people, helping people in life, helping people uh, carry the, the weight of their burdens, it's not about earning salvation. No, that salvation has already been earned. It's about an overflow in the life of a follower of Christ that will cause them to walk in care, that will cause them to walk in compassion and be an active bystander in life. It's about showing grace and mercy, but it's not about earning God's grace and mercy. 
again, just studying what was happening that day is, as Jesus is on his way to his crucifixion, the most profound thing as I was studying this week is, is, is that Simon of Cyrene, he was carrying what's called the transverse beam. It's the horizontal beam. A lot of the, the paintings we celebrate, the, the movies we watch, Jesus is carrying the entire cross, right? The horizontal and the vertical beam, and he's lugging that thing, and that's why he's so stinking exhausted because he's carrying that cross, but Roman practice, and, and the Romans had a practice because, unfortunately, they were prolific in the, this process of execution, and they, they perfected the practice. The, traditionally, the, the vertical beam was already permanently in place, would have already been at Golgotha. What Jesus was likely carrying and what Simon of Cyrene would have been responsible for when they asked him to carry it, again, was this horizontal transverse beam. Now, why do I share this? Why do I mention that? Because it's the same for us. So it is with me and so it is with you. Jesus is taking care of the, the vertical problem. He's offered vertical reconciliation with God the Father. That we can have a relationship with God the Father. This flow of grace and mercy from God the Father. That's been taken care of. But what we're responsible for, what we're asked to be his hands and feet in and co-laborers in is the horizontal work of reconciliation as you read it in 2 Corinthians 5 of reaching out horizontally to those in need. And in light of this horizontal responsibility and calling, we should ask, who is my neighbor, horizontally, and examine Jesus' answer. We should ask, who is, who is Jesus? When have I ever seen Jesus and reflect on his answer in Matthew 25? Because our call to be an active bystander to those in need, it's a foundational part of following Jesus. Our very call to, as we follow Jesus, right, what, what this master or expert of the law says to Jesus, and he confirms, is to love God and to love our neighbor. Love God and love neighbor. And Paul sums up the laws of Christ in this powerful verse. It's Galatians 6, verse 2, where he says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the laws of Christ. Now, many subscribe to the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 where he says, whatever you do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, they're talking about, oh, well, it's only to the family of faith. They don't, they don't defer responsibility, but they kind of limit it, right? We're only responsible for those in the family of faith. But Paul goes on in Galatians to say in verse 10, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, everyone, but especially those in the family of faith. The call is to everyone. Be mindful. Be active to everyone. But so often our inclination in our humanity, as we, we see in these studies, as we saw in Queens, is to be a passive bystander. You know, but a key verse, as we're considering these stories tonight, a key verse that helps us be less passive, it's kind of obscure, but it's when Jesus, it's said of Jesus, that at that moment the Lord turned and looked at Peter. You know, there's power in eye contact. The veil of being a bystander is removed with eye contact. Matter of fact, psychologists say if there's a moment where you've been a victim or you've been injured or you're, you're in a heated moment and you need help, don't just shout help out at the sky. No, make eye contact with somebody and say, you help. Because that gets rid of this inclinations for people to act like there isn't an emergency or somebody else can take care of it, which are two of the problems with passive bystanding. They're told in those heated moments, make eye contact with somebody. Because, again, it takes away the veil of being a passive bystander. It's hard to make eye contact with somebody and remain indifferent to what they're going through. You know, Jesus, again, looking at Peter in that moment while Peter was at the fire, 
is what took away this, this veil he was trying to hide behind of being a passive bystander. And in the account of Judgment Day in Matthew 25, Jesus says people will ask, when did we ever see you? When did we ever lay eyes on you? When did we ever make eye contact? And the assertion is if I had ever seen Jesus in need, I would have helped him. And I go as far as to say, based on this passage in Matthew 25, that when we feel disconnected from Jesus, it's often the case that we're living disconnected from the flesh and blood around us. We so often miss the relationship we could have with Jesus because we're missing the flesh and blood around us. It seems counterintuitive, but it's the truth. We've gotten so good at it, so good at, at missing what's around. Eye contact is a lost art. It's, it's not a game, but sometimes it feels like a game. You're trying to make eye contact with somebody who's walking past you. are just like, like just, just, I just want to say hello, right? Eye contact is a lost art. We are more and more skilled at locking eyes with our screens, right, our, our phones. We become more and more blind to the flesh and blood that's around us. But Jesus calls us to love our neighbor but our culture walks more and more in neighbor negligence. It takes eyes and ears to see that your neighbor ever has a need before you can truly walk in compassion and care. But how many needs do we miss? You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, if you were to update a, a, a modern version, right, the priest, the, the pastor in my case, would probably not see him and, and not do anything. He'd probably just be scrolling and skimming on his phone and never even notice the man in the ditch. It's probably the, the, the modern translation of the Good Samaritan. Our excuse, though, in the moment is that we're missing those things around us so that we can love and care for the people that we can't see. But 1 John 4.20 would give us a good perspective where it says, if we don't love the person we can see, how can we love the God we can't see? If we can't love the people we can see, how can we love those we can't? We should ask, how many needs do we miss? around the people around us, the neighbors around us, the people with needs. And then we should ask, okay, if we're missing them, how serious is that? And in Matthew 25, where we read this passage about judgment, and it's in what's called the Olivet Discourse, this sermon, stream of thought, Jesus talking to his disciples. And, and Jesus precedes this account of judgment with two other parables. Two other parables. There's the parable of the five foolish versions, where there are five who foolishly don't fill their lamp with oil as they should have. And then there's the parable of the talents, where the servant doesn't invest his talent as he should have. And in both of these cases, in addition to the case of the goats on judgment day, they're not condemned for an especially heinous sin. They're not condemned for a long list of sins that they had committed, which is so often what we think of people they go to hell for. But each of these situations, no, they're condemned for their failure to do the right thing, what you would call sins of omission not doing what we're called to do. How serious is it when we're blind to the needs around us or limit or diffuse or defer responsibility? According to Matthew 25, it's pretty serious, about as serious as it gets. You could say we sin with our phones when they cause us to miss the flesh and blood around us and their needs. And I'm not here to knock phones. Religious routines, like these Levites and the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan, they're off doing good stuff. They're, they're religious routine, but that's what kept them from what God wanted them to do in that moment. They were distracted by the divine appointments God had for them because they were so focused on one thing that they missed what was around them. They were stripped of what you would call mindfulness. Because so much of Jesus' compassion, so much of his profound interactions in the gospel, they're just rooted in intentional mindfulness. The simple act of paying attention to what was going on around him. When he's surrounded by a mob, this procession, he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree. 
He's surrounded by another mob, probably felt like a mosh pit, and, and he was able to feel the intentional touch of the woman with the issue of blood. Think about Jesus as he's being put on this, this, this crazy trial with the high priest, and he saw Peter distant and detached at the fire, enough to make eye contact with him. What do you see in here around you that's going on around you? And then what do you do with it? Because Jesus doesn't say what you observed about the least of these, but what you did. When we choose to be a bystander, when others are in need or they're suffering, we, like Peter, make it clear that we truly don't know Jesus. The first step in following Christ is to deny myself to pick up my cross. Again, this, this whole phrase, not my will, comes to mind. You know, we rarely have the opportunity in life to take our time, go through a catalog, and carefully select the crosses that we want to carry. It's not a selection. So often it just comes at intersections of our lives with others. We become bystanders to a weight that's carried by a family member or a friend. Maybe it's a stranger. Maybe it's the least of these. Maybe it's somebody in the margins. And we meet this opportunity to work under a cross that wasn't originally ours to carry. And again, Jesus meets us profoundly in these intersections. Yes, we meet Jesus in a profound way, nights like tonight, worshiping and gathering together. It's one of the ways that we step into God's presence. But I've shared it, and I'll share it again and again. Over 90% of Jesus' interactions in the Gospels weren't in the temple or the church building. They were outside the four walls amongst the hurting, amongst the busted and the broken and the people in the margins. You want to encounter Jesus? Take your relationship him with, with him to the next level? Meet him out there. We find Jesus there according to Matthew 25. And when we meet people in their needs, guess what? They meet him too. It's a powerful verse. It's in Proverbs 3.27. It speaks to what we're talking about tonight. It says, never walk away from someone who deserves help. Your hand is God's hand for that person. Saying, be an active bystander. Don't be a passive bystander. That's directly saying, look, you're God's hands and feet. Couldn't be any more clear. You're God's hand in that situation for that person. Yeah, you encounter Jesus, but they meet the hand of God. And these intersections become divine detours because, they're, again, they're rarely in our plans. They're just that. They're detours. They're stuff we wouldn't have planned. But for Simon of Cyrene, probably the most important moment of his entire life was helping carry the cross of somebody else. It'll be that way for many of us. Some of the truly meaningful Profound moments that we'll look back on in life will be when we came under the cross of somebody else to help them in a season with the weight that they were carrying before they had the strength again to carry on. You know, the impact that you have can be so much greater than just that moment, too. Mark mentions Simon of Cyrene's sons as if his readers would have known who they were. Like, he's like, this is Simon? Oh, he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. And I'm like, thanks, I guess, right? I don't know when an Alexander and Rufus, like what? But he, Mark, if you study his gospel, he's writing the, the Roman Christians, the Roman church. And he, he says the name Rufus like they would have known who he was talking about. Oh, he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. And then you read Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And in Romans, Romans 16, 13, he mentions a Rufus. There's many theologians and historians that would say that this is most likely the, the same Rufus in Rome that they're speaking to. That Rufus and Simon's son could have been one and the same. See, Simon of Cyrene, he carried the cross of Christ. And as a result, Rufus 
carried forward the kingdom movement that was sparked by it. Legacy in our world is often thought of in terms of climbing a ladder and getting to the top. But legacy in the kingdom, it's not about climbing ladders, it's about carrying crosses. It's not about getting to the top, it's about getting in the dirt with somebody and helping them in a time of need. Jesus says that, that you want to be the greatest of all, be a servant. You want to be the, the, the greatest in the kingdom, help people carry their crosses. Come alongside people that are down and out. Be a carrier of crosses. Bear one another's burdens. If I could have the worship team come up, God, I pray tonight you would give us a heart for this. Jesus, that you would touch our hearts and touch our minds and, and touch our eyes. That when we look out as we leave this place, we'd see with the eyes of Matthew 25. That those people that need clothing, those people that need food, God, those are opportunities to minister that we shouldn't stand idly by. God, we thank you for ministries like Micah's Backpack. We thank you for ministries like the one we do in College Square that we are able to do as a church, that the missionaries were able to support. But we know for each one of us that you've placed us in our workplace. You've placed us in our neighborhood. You've placed us in our school. You know the routes we take in our car, the, the routes we walk, the people we're with on the bus, the people we're, we're with in our workplace, that, that you're preparing divine appointments, divine encounters, where we'll learn about needs that, that we can be the answer to. We're, we're, we're there, like it says in Proverbs, they'll, they'll, they'll sense the hand of God in those situations. God, we thank you that, that you would use us in that way. Or we can partner with you under the, the horizontal work and the horizontal labor of reconciling both men to you and reconciling men one to the other, Lord God. And God, I pray that we wouldn't diffuse the responsibility, defer the responsibility, shrink back from the responsibility. God, I pray that passages like Matthew 25 would remind us of the seriousness of our calling. But we thank you, Jesus, that it's a calling that you created us for. We're going to have prayer available. Because maybe for you tonight, you're at a moment where you realize you need to do some 180s. There's some habits. There's some things present in your life you need to let go of. And I pray that tonight, as we worship in God's presence, that he would lay his finger on those things and we would respond. Maybe that looks like just worshiping where you are. Maybe that looks like getting prayer. I can tell you it should look like if, if there's a place in your life that God is telling you to do a 180 and you leave this place tonight, tell somebody. Tell somebody. Get accountability in, in one of your, your, your most close relationships in that place where you know God is saying, hey, you need to do a 180. You need to let this go. Turn from this. But then also, I, there's probably people in here tonight that, again, the enemy's told you these lies that there's hoops you need to jump through. There's sacrifices you need to make on your part in order to come into God's promises and his presence and come to him in moments like this. And I just pray in the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would strike those down. That as we worship and sing about God's love, we'd be reminded again that Jesus came out of love to die for us so that the vertical beam, reconciliation with God, grace and mercy flowing from heaven into our hearts can never be sure. It's permanent. God, remind us of that. Pray this Easter as we see uh, the, the, the symbol of the cross again and again. Remind us that the vertical work is done. But remind us that the, the horizontal work is what you call us to be co-laborers in. Ambassadors of reconciliation, Lord God. We spend this time in worship. If we could stand, we spend this time in worship to praise you. 
but God, where you are asking us to respond. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would make it clear and give us the courage and boldness to do it. In Jesus' name, let's sing. How he loves us all. 